0: Thank you.
1: to the luxury book club i'd like to thank frontlist backlist magazine for putting this evening together if you go to frontlistbacklist.co.uk you'll find a selection of articles on style music film and lipstick Lipstick. why did i forget that that's the one i was going to books Books, and as you might guess from the title it's sort of curated and formatted in a way where It's the best of things that are happening right now and the best of things that have happened in the past. So everything's either tagged as as front-list of things that are exciting right now or back-list of things that they have loved in the past and still continue to love now. I'd also like to thank The Genesis Cinema and Whitechapel for letting us use this lovely space. Uh, I'll introduce the panel first and then we'll be talking about London Fields by Martin Amis, a novel that inspires opinion. Declan Bryant is a faber-new poet and the editor of Days of Roses, a poetry, prose and music collective that presents live shows and produces anthologies of their work. He's also an editor at Ambit and teaches at King's College London, where he also edits Wild Court, a new online poetry journal. Dr Nadia Bauman is a reader in English at Queen Mary University, where her work includes Narrative, an introductory lecture course on how to read novels and writing modern London, a course that considers the ways in which London has been served as a site over the past century for writers to consider or contest changing notions of Brit- Britain and Britishness. Margia's particular area of expertise is East London. Tom Crowley describes himself as a writer... <laughs> I need to, you know, just to, You've agreed to this, you've had to look over it. I know, yeah, you I know. Do, do. He a writer, director and performer specialising in sad things with funny bits. In. He's ready to do sketch work with a comedy troupe Sad Faces, a role in Wooden Overcoats, Britain's first podcast sitcom, and writing a stage adaptation of Shock Treatment, the sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Most recently, he's founded the theatre company Crowley Co. Declan, how did you find the book? I think he, he can write, can't he?
2: He's quite a stylist. That's, that was my, my take home. I, th- I don't know, yeah, I mean, it's entertaining, isn't it? I, I think it was kind of a bit of a, a or a kind of caricature, but I think he's just kind
1: of got a little hollow black heart, like a my handbag. <laughs> <laughs> Nadia, did you get anything out of the book?
0: Well, I mean, I came to this thinking I hate this novel, but it's an opportunity to talk about what I hate about it, and what I hate about it, and think about what I hate about it. And, in fact, that is what's happened. And thinking about what I hate about it, I started to think about what it actually does very skillfully, And the particular moment that it comes out of, that it expresses um, and articulates, I think, very powerfully. But I, you know, I would agree about the black heart. What can you say? I also think, actually, being it as a woman, I, I also feel... That is its it, a huge flaw as far as I'm concerned.
1: But I can say a bit more about that later. Tom, you have a particular response to my name as a writer, not yes. you? Yes, do you want to get the story out of the way now? now? I think so. So, uh,
3: when I was at school, I was, um, I've always liked the way I out. now, I've always liked stories and, and storytelling and novels and comics and film and everything. And um, so, I was sort of being shepherded by one of the English teachers uh, who was uh, what we these days call pretentious arts. And he was sort of, in a very aloof way, trying to sort of keep tabs on what I was reading, and one uh, came back from a summer holiday when I was younger, and um, it must have been sort of like university education time, so it was come out like 10 years ago, and I was, um, that summer i just read The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler for the first time. And uh, I don't know if I've any channel fans in, but I, I absolutely adore him. I've read every single Philip Marlowe book since, those of the short stories. I absolutely love the kind of portrait of the time it painted, a very heightened and stylized one, yes, but enormously influential in this kind of all detective fiction, everything, all film that aspires to that kind of heightened noir style. And I, I said I'd, I'd read and loved The Big Sleep. And this teacher's response was, oh, it's, "It's just pulp, isn't it? It's just pulp, really. That's just pulp. We should read like a real detective fiction book, like a real literary one." And he recommended *Night Train* by Martin Amis, and I read it, and it's the shittest thing I've ever read <laughs> in my entire life for a number of reasons. And for that reason, I, I think most entirely because of Martin Amis, I never studied English literature for the rest of my
1: life. <laughs> I think the, the issue that you sort have to address going mean, into any work by Martin Amis is Myan Amos as a figure. And I do have some sympathy for him, I'm not just playing devil's advocate here. Growing up as the son of Kingsley Amos, you're immediately thrust into a very particular position, aren't you? There's a certain degree of expectation whatever you do is gonna be judged. If you write, you are gonna be compared to your father, but if you don't write, you're writing because of, you're not writing because of your father. Whatever he did, he was gonna fall into a Kingsley Amos shaped trap, I think. And, you know, the, the relationship with his father is very much on the record where he um, is a huge admirer of his father's work, and his father wasn't a fan of his work, and I think that's a, a thing that's affected him as a writer across his career, but because of the nature of his career, he was always going to be a public figure, he was always going to be someone that people were going to, and he started off in, in literary criticism, so his, his, his views on certain things Uh, are are on the record before he starts to write. So he's he's made a rod for his own back in a number of ways. And it is, I think, particularly unfortunate in the last, I don't know, I don't know where to put the line, 10 years, 15 years, he's made a number of public pronouncements and had a number of of personal and professional instances that don't necessarily cast him in the best light. There was a huge feud with Julian Barnes over um, the role of his... uh, uh, agent in terms of a particularly large advance he got and and then the whole you know it was a very martin amy story where a huge sum of money sort of defined him for a long time there and, and what he chose to do with it so i think it's it's hard to go into this sort of book without having that over it and as you say it is it's a book that's quite sort of unforgiving in terms of what it presents and how it presents it i mean have you read a lot of Amos' work? Are you, are you very aware of him as a writer? No, I've not read loads I mean, I've read, I've read a few things.
2: Um, it's interesting you said about him being a literary critic. I think, in some ways, he's, I think, I mean, probably partly because of the whole Kingsley Amos debacle, it, it feels like the things I have read of his are so kind of engineered by someone who knows the canon and he knows everything kind of completely, but it's almost like he's kind of a machine engineered to make a book rather than a writer, a human being writing a book, you know, and I think, sometimes that's his own detriment. I think because of the Kingsley thing, he does end up writing these kind of comedies, and it feels like, a, in some ways, I mean, the later books, not, not this one so much, but the later ones, the more recent ones I've read, are real kind of almost slapstick farce in places, it? it feels like a kind of waste of talent, because I think when he starts off, or when he kind of hits his stride, he finds these other father figures, kind of ironically enough, given his dad was a writer, but he always talks to Ardike and Bellow and, and all of these people, and he, he sort of aspires to that early on, but then he ends up, being quite like King's Game or something. It's kind of it's almost like a fatal flaw or something. you couldn't quite escape from, from that trajectory or something. But but no, I mean I, I haven't read read all of it, but that's that's kind of the impression I had of this book is that it's almost someone who's really bright and who's read everything, cynically trying to put a book together that would do a certain thing as if it was a human being doing it, rather than just writing a book, you know. I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to explain, but I don't know, I just didn't I didn't feel a kind of a soul in the middle of it. It just felt like a kind of a machine
0: I think, I think there's that sense that he wants to write the State of the Nation novel and it you know, has that sort of, I, one might say pretentiousness, but sort of ambition that it's trying to catch um, a sense of what this country, what state this country is in and, and might yet be in. And I think I sort of like that about it. I like that, it's, um, I, I like that it has a kind of broad, grand reach in that way. But I also am annoyed by, by a sense of moralism. That, that really annoys me about Amos or Peter. And you see it in this novel in things like the way that he's so sneering about television. You know, television is what's made Keith kind of unable to tell the difference between representations on screens and reality and it's what's made Keith unable to tell the difference between sex and rape. And, you know, there's this sense that television is, is one of the roots of all evil. Absolutely the symbol of the, the kind of moral vacuousness of contemporary culture. And I just think that's a, you know, that's a pseudo-intellectual sneer and I think you know it, it ruins for me that sort of uh, in a broader kind of philosophical or historical ambition that the author has.
1: Is maybe someone you come across a lot sort of in, in cultural life? Is he someone that's referenced a lot? You work in the theatre, is, is he someone who, who people talk about?
3: Mainly as a result of his opinions and various sort of political controversies has ended up in by saying something controversial seemingly just to be heard about something he's got no expertise in or really very fully thought out opinions of on you know and I'm aware of the irony of that statement as I talk about Martin names. but it no like he's, he's someone who and from what's being said here it sounds very much purposefully is is just mired in pure literary fiction because and maybe because of his father's legacy and his upbringing possibly is just cynical of all these other new media and refuses to engage with them and instead chooses to demonise them. In a way, if you look really like Don DeLillo, he's, he's really keen on dealing with the, sort of the weirdness and the power of something like... God, that's a, <laughs> a very close peep, I aren't mean, The power of something like film or TV or radio. And it's sort of bizarre effect it can have on people. But he, he's accepting it as a norm and in no way judging it as being purely evil. He's just accepting that it's changed the landscape and analysing the changes have in the landscape of human existence, especially in you know, his immediate environment. But the, the idea of somebody who just, especially someone writing contemporary fiction who can't engage with a new medium just seems
1: phenomenally backward. Yeah, he does seem like someone who, understandably, is fascinated by, by writers and writing. As you say, when he talks about his work, it feels like you're reading an essay. He's constantly citing authorities, bringing in references from, you know, literature, from uh, other fields as well to sort of strengthen his position. In a way that, you know, I think a lot of writers obviously will reference other writers while talking about their work, but you do feel like he's bringing in to sort of bolster a point that he feels is not necessarily made in the book, which I think has then got to be a, a famous, right. I mean, in, within this book, you have the structure of the novel within the novel and you have the character of the author within the book. So he does seem like someone who, as you say, doesn't look to film as, a, as something to, to refer to. Um, any sort of mention of moving pictures or, or projected sound is derisory or, or immediately sort of satirized. And it, it, you know, going back to what you were saying about his, his background as well, you know, Kingsley Amis is the obvious Touchstone and influence on him, but just reading around and about him as well, Elizabeth Jane Howard, who was Ames' second wife, I believe, and and basically came into, uh, my name is Ames' life, 15. Sees him meandering for a few years, he drops out of school and isn't really doing anything, and decides that he needs a focus in life, and sort of takes it upon herself to prime him in the classics. She takes him through um, 19th century literature. and and gives him a reading list and a sort of comprehensive guide and and context to the whole thing and I think when you you read his writing he comes across as someone that hasn't discovered reading as a joy has been sort of handed reading and therefore writing as a tool and as a device so there's a lot going on in this novel technically And, and I was saying to Declan earlier as well or at least I think there's the appearance I think it's a cladded novel I think it's a novel. Uh, it's heart has, and that sounds bad. It has very little going on, but there's lots of of sound and fury, the sort of thing that he'd accuse television of. Over the top, to sort of almost uh, distract you. How, how did you find destruction?
2: Yeah, I mean, no, I think that's exactly it. It's, uh, you know, it's worth saying for all our kind of slagging like off of him. Yeah, you know, there are whole very enjoyable. You know chunks of it. You know, there's there's you know brilliantly funny things, and he's obviously you know enormously talented as a stylist and uh, kind of put it together of words and all of that. You know, so there are whole passages that are just brilliantly you know funny to read, and he's he's such a you know talented writer that you know whole chunks of it are r- really fun. You know, but it's just that kind of hollowness maybe afterwards, that kind of bitter aftertaste. I think rather than it's kind of been, it, as you said about television. You know, I think it's one of those things where as much as any novel can be, it's, it's almost like kind of reality television. It's such a kind of immediate pleasure, but you kind of feel awful afterwards for liking you know, bits of it, you know. Um, which is like, you know, there's sort of an irony there. But, um, but yeah, structurally, I think you're right, I think it's kind of supercharged and he's, you know, his style is like that as well. It's, you know, he's like a singer who kind of hit in every note and there's just no breath, I think, in, in the whole thing and it's kind of exhausting, you know? I, I'm, you know. I saw an interview with him on the BBC a few years ago and he, I think he's, you know, again, to go back to Kingsley, he all said to me, oh, you know, you should have more sentences. It's just like he stood up and went over there and you know, like, more of that because it's just too much. And I think by the end, you know, if you read a lot of it in a go, you feel, you know, knackered. I think, and so I think, you know, structurally, there's lots going on. There's, as you said, there's novels within novels and there's plots within plots. But I'm not sure what we kind of come away with at the end. You know, it's it's sort of, it's like a big kind of spiral, but you get to the middle of it and, and it's just hollow. I think maybe to an extent. Well,
0: I think in some ways that, that brutality and that heartlessness is actually what it's mm. about, and that, you know, this is a diagnosis of London at you know, at the at the um, acme of, of Thatcherism, um, it's a London where the population have, uh, 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 you know, it's an atomized population where people have no connections to each other, they um, they don't understand each other's lives, they don't each other, understand each other's history, they have no real sense of London as a, as uh, London's communities, um, how they came to be as they are. That kind of that kind of cynicism and brutality is is what he's writing about, and I think that sense that it's Thatcher's London, it's Thatcher's London with the, with you know the expansion of the markets, with the you know dirty money flowing everywhere, with you know the the, the massive gentrification, cheat by jowl with the council estates, and uh, that you know those sorts of inequalities are, are, are what's produced this sort of place and this sort of world, and that's what we're kind of thrown into. And that's what we're experiencing. So, I I think it's, you know, I think in some ways it's part of its skill and part of the thing I do admire that it's able to sort of make you experience that horribleness.
1: I think it's quite interesting as well when you talk about his lack of appreciation of the origins of community because the focus of the novel is very, very specific for me. It's you have this particular strata or group of people who are interconnected in various ways, and we focus on them and we follow them. And there's nothing in terms of, as you say, their origins particularly. They're all sort of presented to you and, and you don't look too far back into to, to what's beyond them. The, the one element in the book where he will go into the history to a ridiculous depth is darts, where he's tying it into uh, Boudicca and Caesar and like just trying to, trying to stretch the history and precedence of that as far back as you go, but isn't too worried about sort of immigrant communities and how they moved into the, into the area. And similarly, in the background of the book, uh, on a global scale, you've got this thing that's referred to as the crisis and is clearly some sort of nuclear standoff, some sort of, of conflict between nation-states, but it happens so far in the background. It's like, you know, Kath mentions it as something she's read in a paper at the library, and Keith immediately shrugs it off, and Amos has no intention of sort of taking you through in any sort of depth for the other characters you know it affects Guy eventually one day when the market's got to a point that it's frozen completely and his brother has to sort of tell him that there's going to be an issue about their finances but up to that point there's been no hint of that they're very sudden things and we sort of pull in on it and then pull out almost immediately to get back to, to these characters and what they're up to I mean that was the thing that struck me about the book as well you know what you're saying about the, the origin of community there was a lot of, of absent family. In there as well. He refers to certain things that aren't there. Like he, he mentions the fact that you know, and as, as a book, you'd imagine Kath to have a mother and sisters, but they're not there. And you have Richard, Guy's business partner, that is only revealed as his brother in the last sort of 20 pages. And it's almost like he's just saying, "Hey, yeah, brothers, it, family is not important here. These bonds aren't important. Guy and and Keith's relationship is much more important." Than than Richard and, and 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 Guy's relationship, so it's an interesting novel in in terms of what he tends to focus on and what he tends to to, to leave out, and I mean structurally, as I say, the novel within a novel and, and the author being in there is such a writerly thing to do, and he does when he talking about this book specifically, he tends to sort of meet criticism of it through the defence of other authors, so. I think it was a link that was put up onto um, the this backlist website, like about this, where it's an episode of a BBC book club, uh, and it's Amos there with Jim Nocty, maybe? Uh, but a, 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 an audience who had read the book, and um, one of the audience members said, I didn't connect to any of the characters, I didn't sympathise with any of the characters, and Amos is like, you're not supposed to, you know, as Nabokov tells us, you shouldn't be looking at the characters, you should be looking for the author's intention." And I was like, that sounds great, but you, when you say your intention, there's an author in the book who's telling us his intention. (laughs) So he's sort of like setting traps for the reader to sort of respond to, and then answering it. It seems like a a, a false way to me. It sounds like he's sort of devised the book as a kind of obstacle
3: course for the reader to criticise him, with the defence already built in. Which
1: is not the makeup of entertaining fiction, is it, really? Or not the stuff that's going to teach you much? But it is entertaining fiction, I don't think it teaches you anything, because, and I don't think it's really supposed to, I think yeah. it's almost like hey, miss going, you know, if you're looking to books for education, you know, if you're looking for, to, to my fiction for the answer to the world's, you know, the state of the world, you're not going to find it, you need to look beyond that. You know, his deliberate leaving out of, you know, there's not, I couldn't think of a single mention of a governmental figure at any point which is not necessarily essential, but if you're looking at the state of the nation, yeah. the state of the world, well, to not mention... But the I think dollars. that
0: is also partly it in a way, because um, people don't have any connection to politics. People don't really... can't grasp the world they're in. You know, They don't understand the meaning of the crisis. They don't really understand what's going on. They don't have any sort of agency at all, politically. So I think, you know, the fact that you don't get any of that is really, again, it's sort of a symptom of the world that he's representing.
3: It reminds me, of, with reference back to Night Train, because we are talking about stuff not being satisfying, and you know, that being the point, one thing that really annoyed me about Night Train was, spoiler alert, the whole concept of, of it seems to be, as well as some other trappings of this being in a way less glamorous and, and more a gritty, and disappointing, and realistic view of the world. It's so yeah. The spoiler is: it's a detective story where the mystery is never solved. There's a young, rich, beautiful woman who appears to have killed herself, and from the character references we're talking about, everyone assumes there's no way she can possibly have killed herself. There's no way, which is a very sort of compelling premise for a detective novel, we've heard it before, but there's a lot of ways you can play with that. And the way he solves that problem, how do you make that story interesting, is he has the protagonist pursue it for a long time, all the interviewees have literally no idea why it might have happened, and then the book ends. And at no point do you find that study interesting, at no point do you find the absence of information useful, it is just that kind of literary prank. But at the end of the day, all I learned was well I spent £6 pounds on this book and I feel completely ripped off. And that, that's
1: too meta for me to appreciate as a literary statement. Just to, to look to his use of other authors in terms of defence, one of the things he talked about, I think, again, it was on that particular show, if not another one, where he was talking about the characters in the book. One of the criticisms was the fact that the characters aren't sympathetic. And his point was... Characters don't have to be good or noble or heroic to be compelling. We talked about Becky Sharp and Vanity Fair, And he, he said, you know, Updike tells us, because obviously someone else has to tell us, <laughs> Updike tells us that what we relate to in a character is life. So if the character is alive and is active and is doing things, then you will feel affection towards them, you will feel a sort of compulsion to follow what they're doing. In this book, we have Keith Talon, who is possibly the most restless character in the history of literature. Like, he's always doing something, he's never resting, he's always got a con on the go, basically because every con seems built to succeed up to a point where it's going to fail, causing him to need a new one. Did you enjoy any of the characters? But you don't want to say like, because obviously you yeah. can't like them, but...
2: Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely, they're, they're really, I think particularly Keith and Marmoji as well, I think we'll touch on them later, but no, um, I think they're, you know, they're very enjoyable, entertaining characters, but I think the idea of life's really interesting, I was just thinking, you know, when, when uh, Nadia was saying a minute ago about this idea of it reflecting, so I, I think that's absolutely what it does, and that's maybe why I don't, I sort of didn't like it ultimately, it kind of, I don't know, I think I maybe just look for too much in a, in a book, and one of the things it sort of made me think of was, um, I know he loves Larkin, and so one of the criticisms of Larkin was the fact that he was so good at reflecting the kind of ruins that we were all in and the kind of desiccation of modern life that he didn't actually try and solve it, he just sort of left you with this problem. And I don't know, I, I sort of want a bit more, you know, and I think in terms of life, I think they're sort of they're caricatures, rather than, I don't think they're alive in the sense that we would think of life because they can't do anything about it, they can't really change, they're these set characters sort of wobbling around, but I'm not sure that they are alive really in that way, they're kind of, they're acting out something within a kind of machine built to show us that everything's fucked, but I don't want it to be fucked, you know. And I think, um, I don't know, like, what I would like would be some attempt to at least point towards something more than that. And I, I don't know, I think the only way he does that sort of fleetingly is, you know, for the little baby, the, the kind of the novelist that, you know, he, he has this affection for Kim, and that just sort of really tacked on, I think, isn't convinced maybe as much, because it's in this sort of fairly loveless novel. Um, I don't know, it's just weird. I, I found it a bit, a bit weird. And I think, yes, yeah, it's, it's really entertaining and, and all of that. But I think, I don't know, it's, it's easy to confuse sort of liveliness for life. I, just, I don't think any of them were alive in that sense, because I don't think they could change.
0: I mean, I think he's, he's definitely one of English literature's greatest grotesque creations. Yeah. You know, There's no question about that. And, it, I mean, it's so fully realised. Um, I think it's maybe why we feel all the rest of the characters are, are somehow not really characters, is because of the sort of hyper-realism of Keith. And I think there is something also weirdly cartoonish about all of them. I mean, they have those strange, um, kind of bizarre names that are all, you know, like... I don't know what stripper names or something, but they're you know they're all they're not they're not people. They're clearly not intended to be understood as people in the in the you know, classic way we do. I think I don't know. I mean I just feel so I feel very divided in reading Keith because I feel that I'm kind of forced to to be him. I'm forced into his consciousness. I feel that we share. It's absolutely that vitality that you're talking about. He seems to me to come from a whole kind of long line of characters in English literature, beginning with someone like Fullstuff, this sort of um, rogue, kind of um, triapic adventurer, who we can't help but love because he's got such a force force of life. But, you know, in this version, it's got really nasty misogyny tacked on there, uh, or actually central to it. And, you know, in those bits where I'm, I'm reading Keith's consciousness, and I'm reading things like, you only had to buy a half a a pint of vodka, and you know, you could have a. I'm saying, I'm thinking that me, you, who's, who's the you here, who's that? You know, it's obviously Keith's voice, but it's also the reader, and, and the way that we are really positioned in Keith's mind makes me very, very queasy indeed. So, I think you know, I think that's partly what he's doing, and I think it's partly what I really don't like about what he's doing.
1: I did listen to another clip of Amos, it might have been on Desert Island disc, it's somewhere where. He talks about the role of the novelist and the novel, and he quotes uh, Steven Pinker, who's a geneticist, I believe. Um, but he anyway, writes more about social studies than anything else. And uh, one of the things that Pinker does is he talks about the sort of the tools and marks of civilization, the things that have caused violence to, to recede from humanity as we've evolved and moved on through civilization. And one of the things that Pinker mentions is the printing press and the rise of the novel. And the argument is that novels are, in one way, a possible tool for empathy, because you you read them and you are seeing another world through another person's eyes. You're hearing the thoughts of another person. It allows you to identify beyond yourself, which is a thing that allows us then to sort of uh, you know connect socially and form communities and and becomes one of the sort of the key keynotes of civilization. And it was interesting hearing Amos. Say that having read this book where if anything it feels like it's it's going to make you more barbaric As you say it's, it talks to you in a way that evokes the sort of reptilian instincts of your mind rather than than higher thoughts and, and finer ideas and 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 you know instead of giving you hope you know it's almost like he wants you to despair throughout the book you know the role of Nicola which is one we can certainly move on to because I think it is fascinating the role of the central woman in the book is essentially that of a vandal who, who comes in to the other characters, takes what they love, gives it to them entirely, overwhelms them with it, and destroys them. So with Guy, who is, I guess the closest thing we have to a hero in the book, he aspires to be in a heroic figure, and his, his desire is for a romantic love. So she gives him a quest, an impossible quest, and then she showers him with Romantic love and affection, but in a false way. But then breaks him using it. And with Keith, he wants sex. His he, his his driving force in life is is that. So she overwhelms him with pornography and promise, and, and just drives him to the you know the brink of destruction through uh, promising and then and breaking that promise. And with uh, Samson, the author in the book, he needs a novel, so she gives him a novel. But it's too much novel. So that destroys him and, and forces him to do what he does. So it's, a, it, it's almost a thing where Martin Amis sort of goes, these are your central characters. They are of differing you know, moral worldviews, but they all have something. they want. That comes back to the idea of life in the characters. They want something, and they're going out to do so, and they're motivated to act on it. But it's almost like Amis is going, oh, you want something? Have it. It will kill you. And it is a thing where, as, as a book, as a message, that is... Quite unsatisfying. Um, just to spin back to to Nika as a character, who is fascinating, certainly. How how did you respond to her? A... Yeah, no, she, I mean she certainly
2: is. But again, I mean the whole thing, it, it, that idea of um, sort of a book being kind of inoculated against its own problems, you know, it kind of. It's not enough, maybe, to say, oh yeah, you know, she's a cipher, isn't she? She's like a, a male fantasy figure, and then spend like 30 pages showing how she's a male fantasy. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't get you off the fact that that's all it is, you know. I don't know, I think that's exactly it, isn't she? she? She's this kind of, um, this creature who gives people a super abundance of what they want, but... And again, you know, it's a caricature and it's a kind of fable and all that, but it's just, there are times when it's, it becomes so kind of disconnected from anything like conceivable reality that it just... It's hard to take, isn't it, you know, she's like, it's just, even if something is a caricature or a portrait, you need some connecting thing, it's just like, just, I, I didn't get it, you know, I didn't get the, um, unless she's, you know, maybe some kind of grand symbol for manufacturing kind of principles or something, but it's just, it's clumsy, you know, I
1: think. Right to buy gives you a house, but then destroys social houses. Yeah, you know.
0: I mean, I, I would, that's how I would read yeah. it. You know, I think it's, um, it is quite odd that in some ways, you know, Nicola clearly isn't based in any kind of observation, there's yeah. no sort of realism of language, none of the things that make really, really a really brilliant literary creation. She really uh, is, um, yes, kind of archetypal in a way that he, he isn't, or is, but also is more than that. But it seems to me both of them are, are just this embodiment of a kind of um, a, a brutal individualism, um, a seeking after self Gratification and kind of you know a disregard for any notion of society in the classic Thatcherite um, philosophy. So it seems to me that both of them are cyphers in that way. They're not people. They're not they're not characters. They are telling us something about that world.
1: One of the sort of large criticisms of Elaine's work as a whole is the treatment of women, and the, the sort of the, the the line seems to be. The fluctuation in terms of his approach to women is, is the line up, up, up where he sets at what age they become pointless. So here it's 35, um, she cannot see a future beyond 35, so she has to die on her 35th birthday. She has no intention to, to reproduce, and that sort of scene as like, if you're not going to do that, what's the point in hanging around? Um, apparently, later books like he raises the bar up to about 50, so that's, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's getting that.
0: I mean, I think that uh, actually more generally, it's um, you find yourself in the old position reading this book, where I think basically all readers are are supposed to see themselves as Elizabeth Keith and everybody, and all readers are supposed to fancy nicola, and really, we all kind of share Guy's hard on you know, for that last third of the book, so you know we feel his pain, and I think that. That that is assuming a certain kind of reader. I think, you know, possibly it, it you know, it makes me understand masculinity or it throws me into the experiences of masculinity it represents. But I think that it's very clear that this is a this is masculine in a you know, in a in a very, very broad way.
1: In a very nice way. Yes. In <laughs> way possible. Just do, uh, do you think
3: that's intentional or do you think it's literally that he can't see beyond his own direction, basically?
0: It would be very disappointing, you know. I mean a writer surely should be able to <laughs> should
1: have um, the imagination to do a bit more I think Amos, if he was here would defend himself by saying that the broad strokes are very deliberate he wouldn't see it as a failure with him as a writer it's him leaning into what he wants to do as a writer and what he's good at as a writer and these are very broad characters but there is some tremendous moments within that it is moments there isn't there isn't arcs there isn't great journeys that these characters go on but he creates He's a, he's a terrific comedy writer. He creates characters that are perfect for the slapstick and the absurdity that he's going to push them through. I mean, for me, going back to the structure of the book, I found the first third really enjoyable as we introduce these characters. And you get a sort of pen portrait of each of them. Less so with Nicola, because her role is going to be much more functional, technical, but, and, and particularly with Keith, where it is such a, a lurid picture that he draws. Um, but it was really enjoyable just sort of getting the spotlight moved across onto these people and, and seeing their different worlds he's very good at creating these particular characters in these particular scenarios that don't necessarily reflect the worlds around us there's a, again a, a bit on some show he was talking to and he, he said to someone these aren't your friends and neighbours you're not really supposed to see yourself and I mean, which again I think can work both ways in terms of your effectiveness as a writer it can be disguising a failing, or it can be Sort of accentuating a a strength but then the the second third of the book the center of the book was my favorite bit where he's introduced the characters and we get the sketches in terms of the scenarios they're put into so we see keith out robbing and it's ridiculous and we see guy as a father and it's ridiculous and then towards the end as you say the final third where nicola's plan is is fully in gear for me I found it very very repetitious, you know, uh, it's her and Keith and she puts on a video and I think that's very deliberate on Amos' part where he's like, you know, if you, if you were going to want one thing and focus on one thing and go after one thing, it's going to be very boring. And for guys these sort of chased walks and then these odd sort of lifeless kisses. So she throws in a special one at the end, just to sort of keep him put on for the for the next one. So and it, particularly the last sort of 50 pages where it sort of feels like games like, oh, I've got to like tie up a plot here, and I haven't really got one in that sense. It, that's what feels very slight to me when he actually is doing the business of tying up the story. I mean,
0: it's it, because it's got this this sort of conceit of the writer, the writer sort of. Um exposing the, the production of the book as, it's in, as, it, as it takes place. Um, I suppose, in a way, that's another irony that you sort of see the clunkiness of the plot construction as it, as it unfolds. Um, you see the difficulty of writing um, all the way through and the difficulty of,
1: of concluding, also. I think as well, though, just for me, when I was looking at it as, as a novel, as a story, um, as, you know, stripping away these, these characters are stripping away the one the, mo- the wonderful moments and looking at what's driving the plot through and then what are the sort of themes and ideas that he's getting us to look at? I found it very slight. For me, felt like a very small idea that's then cladded with lots of other small ideas, you know, some very big ideas. He's like going, you know, the bomb is here and that's sort of laid on top of it and that gives it some weight. But I don't feel it's sort of incorporated in a very natural way. It feels very much like it's cladded on, and here is the bomb, and here is the bomb, and here is the bomb. And at the centre of it, for me, it's the story of the two children. It's a story of of Kim and Marmaduke. And again, they're too hard to call Marmaduke a slight character, but they're such extremes. There's no nuance there. There's no character there. You have Kim, who is an angel, and he's perfect. And he's just at the mercy of the world. And, you know, the fate of the world is the fate of Kim and and what will become of us. And you have Marmaduke, who's just the devil and a force of nature and, and, you know, as you say, Amos' view of masculinity personified and just on the rampage constantly. And at the end of the book, we're sort of left with Marmaduke is better, but still not good. And Kim, you know, at the end of the book, the characters are essentially charged with making sure that Kim's all right, making sure that human innocence will survive. And I just felt it was a very, I don't know, clunky, almost adolescent ending to the book. You know, The, the Rachel Papers is obviously his first novel and it's looked upon as being, you know, a, the, the, you know, a classic debut novel in its sort of handling of, of, of love and romance and these ideas. But for me, for a writer at the peak of his powers you, at this point, It just seemed a very odd thing to sort of go, innocence is all. Having spent, you know, 400 pages sort of going, ah, you know, it's a horrible world, do what you need to to get through it.
2: Well, yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. I mean, the kind of, that sort of twist at the end where he, you know, he kind of stands in for um, for Guy and it's kind of his grand gesture and then there's that whole, the ending, you know, that kind of of weirdly... I think it's meant to be sentimental or something, but it just—it felt a bit weird. It felt, I mean, the whole relationship of that of the writer character with with Kim feels really weird because it's kind of only hinted at, and I think you know, obviously, you get it deliberately, but it's fairly unsatisfying that whole thing of him kind of going around to the it. Again, it feels a bit like a kind of a gesture that's not been fully seen through, and then that ending—I think he thinks that's a kind of really big lift-off. We'll all kind of go away dewy-eyed, but it's just a bit weird, isn't it? No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to kind of how to take that final bit where it's all this kind of you know I was the sun on your back and the wind in your trousers or whatever. It's all a bit bizarre, <laughs> do not know, It's just odd because um, it is. It's this reaching for sentiment at you know the very last moment in a whole thing which is you know nihilism. You know by by the book. It's weird, really weird. Yeah,
0: I think that's right. I think the whole the whole book, the kind of atmosphere uh, the whole book is, is a world in decline and it's um, it's terminal. Um, and that nothing really can redeem that. So the end and the end can't redeem that, no matter what he does with the plot. So it seems that, you know, that vision of a world in decline is really the point, it's, mm. it's really what the novel's doing.
1: I think, you know, particularly looking at the world around us and the situation we're in now, his environmental concerns mm-hmm. were spot on. I think he sort of, you know, predicted that. How, how did you find it, it as a, almost a work of science fiction? That's
2: definitely true, but again, as you mentioned, that kind of destruction in the book and that whole thing about you know the world's going to end and all that. You mentioned Don DeLillo earlier, and there's that kind of what is it, the Airborne Toxic Event that he talks about. That's the one, yeah. That's so much better, I think. Um, It's it's interesting. So last time we were here, we talked about um, Hangover Square, and that had the the Second World War, and that was used as a kind of big metaphor. It was appeasement, and it was this build-up to tension. You know, eventually this kind of violence breaks out at the same time that the main character does his violence and it kind of parallels it and it was kind of understated that it was there and it felt like a kind of hinge point whereas this I think it, it, it did feel maybe it's just my own reading of it because I, I sort of I just liked it less maybe but it just felt more tagged on you know it felt more like okay I want it to be a state of the nation so I've got to have also you know throw this at it throw that at it and it, just, it always felt slightly peripheral to it because you know It's it's another big, grand, slightly over-the-top thing in a book of big, grand, slightly over-the-top things, and it got lost for that. I think if everything else was a bit more toned down, that might seem more important, but it was just, yeah, well, they're going to die anyway,
1: so might as well be by fire. It it tends, for me, to get sort of conflated with the crisis. When he talks about the crisis, there were times when I was thinking, oh, you mean the inevitable environmental catastrophe that's going to happen, but then towards the end you're like, oh, there's actual conflict that's there.
0: I mean, to me, in fact, that takes it back further into the past rather than into the future because I think, in some ways, that vision of London as a place of um, filth and congestion and sort of um, overdevelopment and, and dirt and all the things that, have, that, that are the kind of environment imploding. I mean, not so much the climate change aspect, but that, that sort of filth, filthy London goes, you know, goes back right, right into the 19th century and, you know, Dickens wrote like that. Um, you know, there are many, many... The wasteland, um, TSA, it's the wasteland, many kind of visions of London as this place of, of dirt and filth and waste. And um, so in some ways it feels actually quite a retro <coughs> version of London's future, um, as, it, as it indeed was, as you say, you know, that, that aspect of London hasn't come to be.
1: I'm going to have Declan read a short piece from the book. And I think it's a piece that shows Amos' strengths. You know, shows him as a supremely gifted writer of comedy.
2: Um, Yeah, okay, so this is when they're they're burgling, isn't it? Yeah, him and uh, Theologos. Little did they know that the place they were about to burgle, the shop and the flat above it, had already been burgled the week before. Yes, and the week before that, and the week before that. It was all burgled out. Indeed, burgling, when viewed in Darwinian terms, was clearly approaching a crisis. Burglars were finding that almost everywhere had been burgled. Burglars were forever bumping into one another, stepping on the toes of other burglars. There were burglar jams on rooftops and stairways, on groaning fire escapes. Burglars were being burgled by fellow burglars, and were doing the same thing back. Burgled goods jigged from flat to flat. Returning from burgling, burglars would discover that they had been burgled, sometimes by the very burglar that they themselves had just burgled. How would this crisis in burglary be resolved? It would be resolved when enough burglars found burgling a waste of time and stopped doing it. Then for a while, burgling would become worth doing again. But burglars had plenty of time to waste. It was all they had plenty of. And there
1: was nothing else to do with it. So they just went on burgling. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's very broad comedy. It is repetition, it is that, that thing, that you know, thing in an absurd comedy of, repeating something so it's not funny anymore and then repeating it some more so it becomes funny again. Just burglar jams on rooftops. Like, it's a wonderful visual image as well, that's the thing, he's using the language there um, and, you know, tickling a certain part of us, but it's also incredibly well done. There's a lot of ways to repeat uh, a verb, but he's uh, really taken it to new heights there, I think. there other aspects of the language that you enjoyed? Well no, I mean as I said, it's, it's that thing that he's he's you, know, you can really
2: write a sentence. I mean sometimes too much. You know, there's that thing of sort of throwing everything every time. Every sentence is kind of ratcheted up. But no, I mean you can really write. I think you know, um, and that's kind of why it's annoying in some ways because as I don't know, it's that, like I've, like we talked about the late reveal here before. And I just sort of really want to do that kind of Tom Bourne here. i it only worked on one level. You know, it's that kind of thing of just like he's got his trick and he's really brilliant as a stylist and all that. But it's just he's kind of not putting it to full use, you know, because it's not... The, you know, again, we've mentioned it before, but the irony of someone who seems so down on kind of low entertainment, doing low entertainment, you know, and a lot of it is, well, not low entertainment, but just, it's not a great novel, and I think he thinks he's a great novelist, and he spent his time writing these kind of entertainments, there's nothing wrong with entertainment, you know, of course there isn't, but he's probably the last person who believes that. And he's kind of trapped himself in this weird knot of, you know, being a brilliantly entertaining kind of funny, comic writer, but he, in his head, thinks he's kind of Saul Bellow or something. He? He, he's taken yeah. an insane an
1: attempt to sort of stretch into yeah, yeah, state it's of nation or
2: a the great novel. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think he would have been a better sketch writer. You know? like, I mean,
2: he's, he's not as good as Peter Cook, but, you know, he's going to go, <laughs> isn't he?
0: I think, you know, when I was thinking about my favourite passage of the book, it was that very one that you read. Um, so, I think, you know, there is something about that that hits it for me. And, and I think the absurdity, again, in that passage, he's able to use the fact that it's science fiction, that he's actually not writing about the real world um, to, to push the language into to an absurd point. And I think, yes, that is what he's best at. I think also, I suppose, the grotesquery, the willingness to just take things further than realism, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. Um, and I think, you know, in that respect, it seems to be experimental in, in a quite interesting sort of way. Yeah, the humour comes across. I mean, it's very sort of,
1: particularly in, in the, these early the middle parts, very broad villain, isn't it? It's Very broad, very, very slapstick. Like, I couldn't get past the image of, of Keith as Mr Punch, just sort of yeah. this sort of like red faced and you know yeah. yelling at the baby and just sort of yeah that that idea. That's what he's tapping into, and it is a thing. The humour that he seems to love is. You know, there's there's verbal aspects, a lot of slapstick, a lot of puns, a lot of would be what would should be considered low humor. And I don't know whether that's him saying, "Oh, I can enjoy this as by itself," or thinking he's somehow elevating it by placing it into a book that he's also dealing with apocalyptical themes as well. Declan's going to read sit now with my favourite character in the book. And as I feel odd calling him a character because he's very much designed for one purpose, but It's a hell of a purpose. He was now faced with the task of
2: equipping Marmaduke for the outside world, of dressing him entirely from soup to nuts, with the child throwing all he had at him every inch of the way. In the nursery, Guy took off Marmaduke's nappy and despairingly wedged him into the potty. Are you going to make a present for Daddy? he asked, again quite hopelessly. Twenty minutes later, following Marmaduke's reliable failure to make a present for Daddy, Guy wrestled him into nappy line at nappy, nappy pants, vest, shirt, trousers, socks, shoes, jumper, and downstairs anorak gloves, face mask, bobble hat, scarf. As he was dragging him towards the front door and reaching out to free the double lock, Marmaduke went super-void, in the local phrase. The phenomenon usually marked the end of Marmaduke's experiments in week-long, white-lipped constipation. The child, in other words, had swamped himself in orgy, When Guy unravelled Marmaduke's scarf, he saw that some of it was even peeping over the collar of his shirt. In the nursery again, Guy wrestled him out, a bobble hat, face mask, gloves, anorak, jumper, shoes, socks, trousers, shirt, vest, nappy pants, nappy and nappy liner. Waved away the game but gagging nannies, hosed Marmaduke down in the master bedroom, and wrestled him back into nappy liner, nappy, nappy pants, vest, shirt, trousers, socks, shoes, jumper, anorak, gloves, face mask, bobble hat and scarf. During these struggles, Marmaduke's lifelong enthusiasm for hurting his father and within that, his specialisation in hurting his father's genitals was given play only twice. A flying headbutt to the testicles, and an unrestrained blow with a blunt instrument, a toy grenade launcher, to the sensitive tip. The new pains joined and reinforced and starred in all the ensemble pains that were there already. This time, he actually got the front door open before Marmaduke was noisy and copiously sick.
1: We see again there the the love of the list. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And used to great effect as well, to emphasise the sort of effort that Guy has to go to just to prepare his son for the world. Marmaduke's a fascinating character. He's born and is horribly ill for the first few weeks of his life, I think. And then, you know, Guy and his wife have to hire teams of, of medical professionals to sort of watch your look. And the, the child's just sort of like green and lying still and um, doing nothing. And then, I think Amos describes it as almost like shrugging off the illness, removing like his skin. And then underneath there's this like pink, Boy soldier who's ready to attack. He doesn't crawl, he just starts walking one day, and uh, Amos says it's as if he decided that was the way that he'd be most effective in causing damage. Just to wrap things up, um, we did this last time and I ambushed the panel, so this time I didn't mention it to the panel beforehand. Um, Just to ask you, just to sort of move away into books more broadly, um, I'm going to ask the panelists to recommend a book that they've read recently and enjoyed, or a book that you've read in the past and enjoyed, or a book that you think might be um, sort of complementary to London Fields. Um, I'm just starting, uh, say you've been publicly shamed by John Nelson, oh, yeah. um, which is uh, tremendous non-fiction, obviously. Um, but John Ronson is, uh, yeah, one of my favourite writers. I think he's got an, an excellent voice. And in real life, an excellent voice as well. <laughs> Um, well, I think in terms
2: of, like, Complementary this, um, you know, he's always talking about people like Updike and, and Bellow and stuff, and I think, like, the Rabbit novels, um, in terms of State of the Nation, it sort of does some of the same things, it's got the same sort of luminous prose, but I think there's just a bit more love in it, you know? And, and the opening scene, I don't know if you've read it, but um, where the main Rabbit character, he goes through these different decades of, of American life and he becomes a kind of cipher for, for all of it, but there's an opening scene where he used to be a basketball player, and he's kind of... I don't know. He's nearly thirty in the first book, and he sort of—he just picks up a basketball and he plays a game. And like more, there's more beauty in that kind of opening scene in that book than there is in this, But it's brilliant, and he's a, hes a real stylist as well, I think, Hubert. But and he's—you know—there are some objectionable things, and, and Rabbit's not necessarily a lovable guy the whole time. But there's just more kind of heart, to it, more humanity, I think. So maybe that, or Humboldt's Gift by Bello, which I
1: love as well. Well, I think in particular, he's—he's he's never said it in public, but I think. Updike is the writer of the Amos. Yeah, People important. sort of, I think, thought that he wanted to be King's Amos. Yeah. You know, it was always going to be tethered to that name. But you always get the feeling, particularly, as you say, the kind of work he does and the kind of style he aspires to is Updike. Yeah. Yeah. One
0: of the things that really frustrates me about London Fields is that what it doesn't remember about 1989 is that the 80s were a decade of protest and of politics, of people really exerting agency in many, many ways, and not just um, sitting and taking it. So I think my companion volume for London Fields would be Colin McInnes' novel Absolute Beginners, set in exactly that same spot, um, Westbourne Park, um, Grove area of West London in in the late 1950s and early 1960s, which is a really joyous evocation of all the different kinds of sexual and racial outcasts who live together in this neighbourhood, and notwithstanding all the really brutal changes and tensions that are pulling apart London in this period. But I think it does it with a huge amount of heart and also of a feel for the place.
3: Just as a, a bit of a blindside one, but um, partly, riffing on the same things that you just mentioned, but it, I would recommend The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvon, which is a bit of a, a you know 101 looks like London, but it, it's there's a, a profound lack of understanding in the importance of communities and about what kind of people built London. And what's amazing about Lonely London is, is it paints a really beautiful, vivid picture of a new community, which is the um, West Indies, uh, arriving in London, and the profound tension that's found when they arrive and how they don't feel like they belong and they're not even sure they want to be there. But it's this sense of a new beginning. And, and what's incredible is, is with, with a slightly colder tone in the writing even, like it's, it's not very flowery or, or anything, it's just... It's a very matter-of-fact, uh, conversational, almost, novel. You know, kind of a Jamaican kind of patois. And it, but it just paints a picture of, of a London that is constantly in flux, but that no one's quite comfortable with, but they're always adapting. And it has a slight bleakness to it, but it's eminently human all the way through. And it's the sense of being displaced in a community. I don't know, there's something which, from what we've talked about here, makes me think it's a nice companion piece, to read, slightly more optimistic of humans. A compensatory piece. A compensatory
1: piece. So what do you want to actually enjoy? Um, I'd like to thank our panellists for joining us tonight. I'd like to thank you all for coming out tonight. Thanks once again to Frontlist Backlist for putting tonight together, to the Genesis Cinema for allowing us to take over this bit of space. The next meeting of the Luxury Book Club will be on April the 12th, and we'll be looking at uh, 1984 by George Orwell. Thanks a lot. For- This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.